It is so appropriate that we're studying Psalm 16 during the week of Valentine's Day because Psalm 16 is all heart. Everything we see in this psalm flows out of the desire of the heart, not duty. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? I mean, for example, ladies, imagine if this Wednesday, Valentine's Day, your husband comes walking in the front door and uh, he pulls out a, a bouquet of roses from behind his back. And you, you say, wow, they're, they're so beautiful. You didn't have to do that. And he says, sure I did. It's Valentine's Day. It's, it's what I'm supposed to do. Sort of sucks the life right out of it, doesn't it? Well, I'm afraid that much of what we call Christianity, much of what we call our relationship of love and worship to the Lord is really little more than duty. We read our Bibles, we pray, we worship with the church, we live moral lives often, too often, out of duty and not desire. It's what we're supposed to do, but it's not necessarily what we want to do. Psalm 16 is a picture of wholehearted desire for God. My prayer this morning is that we will see the heart of Christianity so that our duty turns to desire. You please take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's God's word. You noticed right away at the beginning that Psalm 16 is a mictum of David. Now, a mictum is used six different times in the Psalms and 
We're not really sure exactly what it means, but among Hebrew scholars, of which I am not, three meanings or definitions are most common. Some think that the, the word means gold, which would emphasize the value of this psalm being pure gold. Others say that a mictum is a mystery. It, it's rooted in the word mystery or secret, which would reveal the, uh, the depth of doctrinal importance of this psalm. Others think that it simply means a writing. And so this would simply indicate that Psalm 16 is a writing of David. Well, I say take your pick, because they're all true about Psalm 16, it's a writing of David that is absolutely pure gold because of the doctrinal and spiritual mysteries that it's revealed. Friends, there is far more to Psalm 16 than we might see at our first reading. Our first reading of Psalm 16 shows us that it's David's heart for God. It's a writing of David that reveals his heart. Did you see David's heart? For God in this psalm? Look in verse 2. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, God. Verse 3, speaking of God's people, he says, they are my delight. Look at verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. Verse 6, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance from the Lord. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Verse 9. He says, His heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. His flesh, His physical body dwells secure. Verse 11. In God's presence, David says, there's fullness of joy, and at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 is a beautiful description of David's delight in and desire for God. It's all heart. But when we come to the New Testament, we understand that Psalm 16 is more than David's heart for God. We understand that Psalm 16 is actually Jesus' heart for God. Psalm 16 is quoted by both Peter and Paul and ascribed to both David and Jesus. Take your Bible just for a moment and turn to Acts chapter 2. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, quotes half of Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, in reference to Jesus. Not just David. Peter, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is Jesus. And, and then again, and we're not going to take the time to look at this, but in Acts 13, Paul does the same thing. He only quotes one particular verse, verse 10, in reference to Jesus. But both of them, Peter and Paul, say that Psalm 16 cannot stay with David, that it must be 
about the son of David, the greater David, King Jesus. Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm that is fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself and specifically by the resurrection of Jesus. Here's Psalm 16:10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. David wrote those golden lyrics for Israel to sing. But David himself did go to Sheol and his body did see corruption. And so Peter and Paul both explain that David at this point was being the prophet David. And he was he was prophesying about the Messiah to come. So look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 25 through 28. You'll notice that the apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, as he's preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, he quotes Psalm 16 from verse 25 through 28 and then verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Paul argues the same thing in Acts chapter 13. You can look at that later today. But Matthew Henry gets it right. He says Psalm 16 has something of David in it, but more of Christ. And because the New Testament applies Psalm 16 specifically to Jesus, we understand that this is not just David's heart, but this is Jesus's heart for his father. What we read in Psalm 16 is the heart of Jesus toward his father. And so this morning, in this sermon, I want to show you two things about Psalm 16. I want to show you that Psalm 16 is even more beautiful than a first reading that sees the heart of the godly King David. First of all, I want you to see that Psalm 16 is the heart of Jesus that accomplished redemption for us. And then I want to show you that Psalm 16 is the heart that redemption accomplishes in us. Psalm 16 is the heart of Jesus that was behind all of the activities of Jesus that redeems us. Now listen, friends, too often... We focus on the physical life and the suffering of Jesus Christ, and we overlook the heart behind it. We cannot diminish the, the righteous life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, nor the physical 
resurrection. But friends, without the heart behind it, none of it would have ever happened. It was Jesus' heart for his father that drove him to live that holy life. That drove him to lay his life down in sacrifice for sinners like us. And just as this is the heart of Jesus that accomplished redemption for us, so too, Psalm 16, is the heart that redemption accomplishes in us. It takes us from whatever duty-driven life we have, whatever cold-hearted thing we may exist in, and it will build us, develop in us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those Jesus has redeemed, he does not leave us alone to try harder and do better. He does not leave us alone to try to change our own hearts. You ever done that? Futility. No. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us his spirit to dwell inside of us. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to change our hearts from the inside out. So that more and more, we begin to live out of desire instead of duty. So let's go back. And with the four different parts of this psalm, let's see the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read this psalm, not excluding David, but let's hear and read Psalm 16 as if it's the Lord Jesus Christ saying these things during his earthly ministry. And what we'll see are four desires of Christ's heart, four desires of Christ's heart. First of all, Christ saw his father as the source of all good. Read verse 1 through 4. These are the words of Jesus. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Jesus has revealed his heart. And what's in the heart of Jesus is that he sees his father as the source of all good. Verse 1, he looked to God as the source of refuge in his times of trouble. Did Jesus experience trouble? Oh, yes. And what did he do? He looked to God as his refuge. 
In verse 2, he looked to God as the source of all good in life. And what we see in verse 1 and 2 is that Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, living and doing the same kinds of things that we do, Jesus Christ regularly came to his Father in prayer as an act of worship and an act of war. How could we possibly live any differently than the Lord Jesus Christ lived? His heart knew that he must have God. In verse 3 and 4, in light of God being the source of all good, Psalm 16 contrasts two different kinds of people. Jesus and David speak about them both in verse 3. He says, those who look to God as their source of good, Christ delights in them. But verse 4, those who look to other gods as the source of God, Jesus says he will not atone for them. He will not take their name upon his lips. They're not his people. He will not take their acts of worship, their sacrifices. Did you notice the phrase, how David describes them in verse 4? Those idolaters, they run after other gods and their sorrows shall multiply. Matthew Henry again says, here we read the doom of idolaters who pursue other gods as eagerly as if they were afraid they would escape from them. And those who run after them, their trouble will be without end. Why? Because God is the source of all good. Number two. For desires of Christ's heart. Jesus Christ was satisfied in his Father and what his Father ordained for him. Read verse 5 and 6. Read this as Jesus' words. This is the, the man who walked in Galilee and Nazareth and Judea and Jerusalem, the man who healed the sick and the lepers and lived life just like you and I did. Jesus said, verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Christ was satisfied with two things here. He was satisfied with the Lord himself. Do you see that? In verse 5, the Lord is my portion and my cup. And then he was not only satisfied with the Lord himself, but he was satisfied with what the Lord ordained for him. In verse 5, the imagery of the the chosen portion and of my cup pictures what every one of us want in life. It pictures what our souls long for, what we love, what we pursue. And as Zach reminded us earlier, there is 
plenty of things that our souls long for that take up the energy of our life. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, what did his soul long for? What was his chosen portion? It was his father. Just like a chosen portion of food or what we would fill our cup with if we had the choice, Jesus longed for his father. David did. Psalm 73, we quoted it earlier. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but what? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus was satisfied in his Father. And then he was also satisfied with what his Father ordained for him. Do you see that in verse 6? So what has fallen down to me? The lines and my lot? The imagery here is is obviously referencing the conquest of, of Canaan, where God portioned out the promised land for each of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And, and so what they did was they, they divided the entire promised land up by boundary lines, and that became the inheritance of God's people. And David and Jesus say here that where they get to live, where they work, where they are going to rear their families is what? Pleasant places and a beautiful inheritance. He's satisfied with whatever God gives. Interesting to note, by the way, that David here is also speaking as one of God's priests because for one kind of person in Israel, there was no inheritance of land. Who was it? It was the priests. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, who was the head of the priests and all of his sons, the Lord said to him, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Are you ready? What was the inheritance that God gave to the priests? I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And Christ, our great high priest, was thoroughly satisfied to have God as his inheritance and nothing else. Jesus was tempted severely in this. Do you remember? When Jesus was in the wilderness... He was tempted by the devil, and he was tempted on, along the lines of contentment and satisfaction, and they were challenged severely. Satan tempted Jesus to, uh, to provide for himself. I, God hasn't given you food for 40 days. How about you just make those stones bread and provide for yourself? Um, knowing that there was suffering coming in the future, that the lines that were fallen for Jesus, the lot that was cast for Jesus, was going to involve tremendous suffering. Satan tempted Jesus to bypass the cross and gain the glory of the nations by simply bowing down to him. He says, I'll give it to you, and you don't have to suffer for it. 
Say the word. But Jesus chose to obey his father. Why? Because that was his heart. That was his desire, not just his duty. And because Jesus' heart was satisfied in his father, he accomplished our salvation. And without it, he would have never accomplished it. Number three. Read verse 7 and 8, and you'll see that Christ set his Father's will before him as the goal of his life. Verse 7 and 8. Read this as the words of Jesus. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Look, his words reveal that his goal in life is all-encompassing. It's, it's his thoughts during the day, and it's his meditations at night. Do you see that? During the day, Jesus received counsel from his Father, and at night, he received instruction. And then, in verse 8, it's, it's before him and beside him. It's all-encompassing. The imagery of Jesus setting the Lord or his Father before him is that God is his guide. Jesus says, I set the Lord always before me. Daily obedience of faith. And because of that daily obedience of setting his father's will before him, he was never shaken, never moved from accomplishing his mission. The imagery of, of God there in verse 8, always being at his right hand, is a person who stands beside us to be our help, as in our helper in court or our helper in battle. For the Lord Jesus Christ, his Father's will was always present in his thoughts and in his decisions and in his motives. He wasn't living life merely out of duty. This was the desire of his heart, friends. And because of that, he accomplished our redemption. Now just do a survey of the Gospel of John sometime, and you'll see that Jesus was father-focused, like a laser, focused on his Father. His, his life purpose was to do his Father's will. Let me just quote him a, a few times from the Gospel of John. John 4, he told his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What was in his heart? Doing his Father's will. John 5, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. John 14, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love my Father. 
look into the heart of Jesus that accomplished our eternal redemption. And you'll see that Christ saw his father as the source of his good. That Christ was satisfied in his father and whatever his father ordained for him. And that Christ set his father's will before him as the goal of his life. Tempted? (laughs) Oh, yes. Jesus was severely tempted in this way. Let's remember that Jesus is fully aware that accomplishing his Father's will involves tremendous suffering. And so we have that incredibly human scene in the garden on the night before his crucifixion when Jesus wrestled with his human emotions and with his human body. And he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what was coming. He asked God, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But rather than listening to the counsel of his disciples, rather than listening to the instruction of his own body, Jesus ended his prayer with the obedience of simple faith. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Where did he get that kind of faith? When he was struggling so deeply that his sweat became blood. Because in his heart, Jesus set his father's will before him as his goal for life. And because he did that, he accomplished our redemption, friends. Number four. Four desires we see. In Christ's heart from Psalm 16. Number four, we'll finally see that Christ was secure in his Father for life and death. Verse 9 through 11. Therefore, Jesus says, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh, my physical body, also dwells secure. For you, my Father, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yes, it's David. But it's even more the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Jesus that accomplished our redemption. Look at the therefore. Like the bottom line on this kind of a life. It it inseparably links verse 9 through 11 with verse 1 through 8. The result 
of seeing his father as the source of good, of being satisfied with whatever his father ordains for his life, and of setting his father's will before him is experience a wholehearted joy and an all-encompassing security. Wholehearted. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. It's sort of like how I can barely talk without my whole body talking too. Jesus' whole being rejoiced because of the security that he felt in his Father. Security, confidence. My Father's got my life. Verse 10. Here's one thing I know, says Jesus. My Father will not abandon me to the grave. He will not let me see corruption. Jesus was absolutely certain that he would be raised from the dead and not be abandoned by his father. And beyond that, he knew that he would be raised to life to walk the path of life. And where does the path of life lead? It leads to the presence of God where there are fullness of joy and, right, and pleasures in his right hand forevermore. The security that Jesus felt from his father in life, in a resurrection, and in eternal life after, friends, that security freed Jesus Christ to sacrifice his life to accomplish our salvation. Yeah, that's more than the first reading for me. That's beautiful. Psalm 16 is the heart of Jesus that accomplished redemption for us. And Christian friend, Psalm 16 is the heart that redemption will accomplish in us. For those whom Jesus has redeemed, he has indwelled us with his spirit so that our heart becomes his heart. So this morning we can read back over Psalm 16 and we learn from the heart of Christ what the Christian life a life of wholehearted desire instead of cold, hard duty looks like. But I got to be honest, I live much of my Christian life out of duty and not desire. This has encouraged me this week to see the heart of Jesus. I want to caution you. Do not see the heart of Jesus and then jump on the treadmill of self-effort and just go try to do better and try harder. No, no. The, the answer is to see Jesus more and to have him change you from the inside out. So as we, as we see the heart of Christ, then we learn to see God as the source of all of our good. I mean, friends, Think about what good 
God has given us. Praise God for all the good that he's provided us in life. Look to God as your refuge in times of trouble. Look to God as the source of any good thing you need and never pursue good apart from God or apart from God's instructions. Because when we do, we'll never see the end of our sorrows. What we learn from Psalm 16 is if God hasn't provided for us, it's not good for us. We learn to see God as the source of all good. And then secondly, we learn to to be satisfied with, with God himself and what God has given to us. Now, isn't that an everyday struggle? I got to be honest, it is for me. Because sometimes I look at verse 5 and 6 and I, and I see the, you know, my, my lot in life. I see the, the lines that have fallen for me. And, and instead of wholehearted desire and gratitude, sometimes discontentment wells up in my heart. But here, as we see the heart of Christ, we we learn to both be satisfied with God and what he has ordained. And that really helps us when when we're discontent with our lot in life. It helps us to grow in contentment, to think about the contentment of Jesus with his lot in life. It helps us to grow in contentment whether we're single or married, whether we're an employee or an employer, whether we live near our grandchildren or 18 hours away. Our satisfaction in life is not in things and in people. It's in the Lord. And therefore, whatever we have, whoever we're with, we have the Lord and our hearts can be fulfilled and satisfied. We can be content in whatever situation we find ourselves. From the heart of Christ, number three, we learn to set God's will before us as the goal of our life. Read back over verse 8. And just as Jesus set the Lord always before him, just as King David set the Lord always before him, maybe it would be a good practice for us to begin every single day praying, Lord, today I set you before me. You are at my right hand. My desire is to follow you. Holy Spirit, please equip me. Equip me with all the faith and the grace that is necessary today so that I can accomplish your will and not my own. Friends, when we live that way, God is always present in our thoughts and in our decisions and in our actions. We'll be more able to resist all of those ungodly, unnecessary, and foolish things that are set before us every day. The heart of Christ teaches us 
to see God as the source of all good things, to be satisfied in God what he ordains, to set God's will before us. And then finally, the heart of Christ teaches us to be secure in God for life and death. Really secure in life and in death. Christ's certainty that his father would raise him from the dead, freed him to live and die. And friends, it will do the same for us. Matthew Henry was very pastoral here. He said, just like the dying Christ, Dying Christians may cheerfully put off the body in a believing expectation of a joyful resurrection. We have the assurance that our physical body shall not be left forever in the grave, but that we shall be raised to immortality. Friends, if we belong to Christ... His resurrection guarantees ours. We're secure. That'll change your life and change your death. The Heidelberg Catechism in question one captured this well. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Now, often I... I, sort of inadvertently put the word hope there. I like the word comfort because it's, it's not so uh, nebulous. It's more, this is real. This really does affect my soul. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The Heidelberg Catechism answers that I'm not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Desire, not duty. And so Psalm 16 sits there before us, showing us the heart of David and the greater heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it asks us some questions. Where do we look for good? What deeply satisfies our souls. What is the real goal of everyday life for you?
Do you really feel secure in life? What about in death? If the truth is, your heart's not like what we've seen today. If honestly, you operate primarily out of duty and not desire. Rather than condemn yourself, rather than climbing up onto that endless treadmill of try harder, do better. Let me just suggest a simple daily, even moment-by-moment, situation-by-situation, practical application of the obedience of faith. When you look at your heart and you see sin or selfishness, when you see duty instead of desire, number one, confess that to the Lord Just tell God, I don't want this. You don't want this. Confess to God what you see in your own heart. Number two, see the heart of Jesus. Think about your situation and think about Jesus, maybe throughout the Gospels, who encountered a same situation a relationship with a person or a temptation to sin or or some type of suffering or disappointment or criticism. See the heart of Jesus in that same situation. See his selflessness. See his sacrifice that actually accomplished our redemption. And when you see that, it'll fill your heart with gratitude Thank God for Jesus that his heart is not like mine, right? Because his heart drove him to accomplish his mission, which saved me. And let that gratitude, let that gratitude pour out of your heart in praise to Christ. And then number three, ask the Holy Spirit of Christ that dwells in you to change your heart so that it beats more like Jesus's. Just ask him to do it. It's not going to happen any other way. Ask God to change your heart. But don't stop there, friends. Once you've confessed, once you've seen Jesus, once you've asked the Holy Spirit for help, Then, here's what the Christian life looks like every day. It's acting, not out of duty, but it's acting, obeying the simple obedience of faith because of the gratitude for what Jesus has done for me. We don't live this way in order to be saved. We live this way because Jesus has already saved us. He has secured us. And now we can go live and try and fail and try and fail. Man, that's grace. So in that moment, act out of gratitude in the same way. Follow Jesus. Whether you feel like it or not, nine times out of ten, you'll be so glad you did. But regardless, we act out of gratitude for the gospel instead of duty.
to religion. It's beautiful. Psalm 16, it's both the heart of Jesus that accomplished redemption for us, and it is the heart that redemption accomplishes in us. So my prayer is that you'll see Christ's heart this morning so that it changes yours. Let's pray together. Father, what we've seen this morning is that you are the source of all good. What we have seen is that that we, our hearts, will never be satisfied until we're satisfied in you. You are the only one that can fill our soul's longing. Father, we see that you, through your Holy Spirit, are the guide of our lives every single day. That accomplishing your will is is the very best thing that we could possibly do in life, no matter what it is, no matter what lot you've called us to. And we've seen today that you secure us for life and death, and that security actually frees us to live and to die, to give ourselves away for others, and to die with hope. So I pray that you would show us the heart of Christ over and over again every day until it changes our hearts. May we live so that you are seen as the greatest desire of every soul. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.